I'm Monica Olson. And I'm Jennifer Walsh. And you're listening to the Biophilic Solutions Podcast, where every other week we sit down with experts and thought leaders across industries in order to explore the innate connection between humans and nature and why we need nature to thrive. We truly believe that in order to tackle the global environmental problems we're facing, we as humans must reconnect to the natural world and come to a better understanding of how we fit in and how we are so interconnected. So in every episode, we'll interview new guests that help us uncover and highlight nature-based solutions to get us on a path to greater health, tackling climate change, and ultimately getting outside and connecting with nature. So let's get to today's episode. Hey, Jennifer. Hey, Monica. Jennifer, who are we talking to today? Okay, so today we're talking to Hannah Palmer, an urban designer and Atlanta native whose first book, Flight Path, a search for routes underneath the world's busiest airport, traces the expansion of Atlanta's Hartfield-Jackson Airport and the effect that it had on the surrounding communities and the natural landscape. Her research led to the discovery of the Flint River, Georgia's second longest river, whose headwaters flow literally underneath the airport. Many local residents, Hannah included, had absolutely no idea that the river even existed. I know, it's kind of wild. So Hannah is now one of the major figures behind Finding the Flint. This is a collaborative project whose vision is to rethink and redevelop the area surrounding the airport with the Flint River integrated into its vision. She's working alongside the Conservation Fund, who many of you know through Stacey Funderburk, who our listeners are familiar with. We had him on in December. She also works with American Rivers, the Atlanta Regional Commission, and Beltline's Ryan Gravel. So, Monica, I have to ask you, since you live south of the Atlanta airport, did you know anything about the Flint River? Absolutely no idea until coming across Hannah's work. I even asked our producer, Katrina, who's an Atlanta native, if maybe she had heard about it at any point growing up, and she had no clue as well. So I think the whole notion that there's a major river flowing underneath the runways and parking lots is pretty astounding to a lot of people. It's really wild and so fascinating. So let's get to our conversation with Hannah Palmer. Hi, Hannah. How are you? Good morning. I'm great. Thanks for having me. How are you? We are so thrilled to have a new year and to be with you to discuss everything that you're doing in the world and all the hard work. And we're excited that you're with us today. So thank you for joining us. Yeah. And one of the first things we always are curious about is your background. And you're here in Atlanta, as I am, while Jennifer's in New York. But tell us a little bit about, you know, have you always lived here? How did you become an author? And how did you sort of get interested in conservation, but most specifically here in Atlanta? I'm an Atlanta native. And for those who are from Atlanta, to be more specific, I'm from Forest Park, Georgia, which is in the airport area, mm-hmm. kind of a suburb on the east side of the world's busiest airport. Let's see, grew up in Atlanta and went to college in Atlanta. I went to Agnes Scott College and then moved to New York immediately after because I was obsessed with writing and writers and publishing. And after a few years in New York, came back to Atlanta and had definitely fresh eyes for this city that I thought I knew so well. It changes so fast. If you leave for a couple of years and come back, it's like a different city. And though I'd been interested in writing my whole life and definitely a bookworm reading and obsessing over words, it wasn't until I came back to Atlanta and I had this fresh perspective that I started writing about Atlanta, about the South, about history, about how cities change, why some places decline and why some places thrive. And that writing and digging, which was totally amateur, led to my blog, which became my first book. And we'll talk about that some more. And then really has led me into a career in urban design and urban conservation. 
Yeah, that's so exciting. And Jennifer and I are always out and Jennifer, especially walking nature, finding rivers and stuff. But tell us a little bit about the Flint, because I had only heard about it from your book. And we're just south of the airport. So it's very close to us. We'll go through the airport all the time. But who knew there was a river running underneath it? So tell us a little bit about that research and how that came about. You're not alone. Don't feel embarrassed if you've never heard of the Flint River. Um, most people in Atlanta, when I talk about the Flint River, we first have to clarify that I'm not talking about Flint, Michigan, or yep, yes. you, know, that, you know, have to kind of narrow down. Know that the second longest river in Georgia is the Flint River, and it starts right here, actually in East Point College Park, and flows underneath mm. the airport. Despite having grown up in Clayton County and seeing places like Flint River Village, Flint River Road, I had no concept of the Flint River. I had never really seen it. Maybe I've driven over it. But there's a reason for that. The river is all through Clayton County, but there's no place. There's not a park or a trail or a place to go swimming or fishing or hiking. And unless you have private property on the Flint River, you don't even know about it until further into South Georgia, where there's public parks and access points. So I'm like you, never heard of the Flint River until I started studying the airport and reading about the history of the airport's expansion. So I mentioned that I'm from Forest Park, but originally my family lived in a little town called Mountain View which was, mm -hmm. it's no longer a city. The entire city was bought out by the airport. Uh, and that is the subject that got me interested in writing about the airport's effect on the South side, because I discovered that not only was my family's home bought out by the city during the late seventies, early eighties, when the airport was expanding, but hundreds of families, thousands of families like mine were bought out or relocated to this massive government program starting in the seventies and lasting all the way up through two thousands. So that saga, which is both personal and quite an Atlanta story, forms the mm -hmm. basis of my book, Flight Path. In the process of that research, I was reading about the building of the fifth runway and I read that they had to reroute a creek called Sullivan's Creek. And they had to do all this infrastructure development to contain the Flint River. And that was the first where I was like, wait a minute, there's a river under the airport. Do people know that? Is that normal? And like mm -hmm. so many things with the Atlanta airport, there's nothing normal about this airport. It really pioneered the development of major airports that the whole world has sort of watched and studied and copied really since it was founded 100 years ago. So after I started learning a little bit about the river under the airport, I was actually approached by a team of conservation groups, including the Conservation Fund and American Rivers and the Atlanta Regional Commission had hired my friend and colleague, Ryan Gravel, the Beltline guy, mm -hmm. to do mm -hmm. some thinking about restoration opportunities around the airport as related to the Flint headwaters, which five or six years ago, nobody knew where they were. I mean, you had to be a historian or maybe a work for the water and sewer department of the city <laughs> of Hapeville or something to even have a concept where the river's mm -hmm. headwaters were. So I joined this team of awesome conservationists and urban designers and stormwater experts and sort of brought my historical knowledge of the area and also my passion for the South Side and Clayton County and the airport area. And together we started digging into the historical maps, the historical records of springs and trying to trace the river's actual source. And that's why we started to call it Finding the Flint. Originally, we were just talking about the Flint Headwaters Restoration Project. It had no name, but we referred to it as finding the Flint on our outings, in our research, in our conversations with people who might remember a river in the area and actually had experience of swimming or fishing or playing in the creeks of the area. 
So through that digging, we started calling it Finding the Flint and this big, crazy project was born. <laughs> I think that's so interesting, Hannah. And also the fact, because Monica, I talk about this all the time, is that when we spend time in nature, there's a sense of exploration, discovery that I think we all innately have within us and that your sense of discovery led you to wanting to research more and then go down this path of really a real discovery and exploration of like, what is here that I didn't even know existed? How come people don't know anything about it? Because here I am sitting in New York City. I didn't know anything about it, but I flew to Atlanta for decades. And I get to learn from you about what exactly is happening in the Flint River and why it's important. So I think your work is so interesting to me and to so many others of that sense of discovery is so necessary right now. That's right. And it definitely feels like a treasure hunt, like a scavenger hunt. When I take people on tours of the headwaters, we're poking around uh, barbed wire fences and looking down storm drains and keep going back to old maps. And there's a real sense of like, oh, we're explorers. We're trying Mm -hmm. to find something that is still here. It's just buried underneath the landscape. And there's something really empowering to residents who either remember the river and remember a different version of the landscape that was probably more livable, honestly. Mm. They remember playing in creeks and when creeks were safe to play in and not so polluted by urban runoff. It's empowering for them, but it's also empowering for new residents and a new generation who are living in this area who want to see more sustainable development, who know that this area is rich with resources, with history, with culture, with wildlife, honestly. Mm-hmm. And they see this work with Finding the Flint as an opportunity to rethink the airport area and to knit together things that have been disrupted by runways and freeways and to try to come up with smaller scale design that kind of fits into people's backyards and lives and really enriches our lives with play and spaces to meditate, spaces to escape from the noise and the concrete. And it's all right there. The treasure is right there. Mm -hmm. The hard part is reconnecting all these things that have been disrupted over decades of growth with very little concern for the river and what happens downstream. I'm excited that you like hearing about this in New York because I'm sure you're in a disrupted watershed too. You just gotta. <laughs> right? Well, that's exactly your work is making me question and wonder what's happening in my own backyard, whether it be LaGuardia, JFK, or Newark. They're very close, but what could be happening is now I'm thinking about what's happening down river, really, literally. Well, and I think that the history of these urban projects, these huge urban projects, I lived in Grant Park, which is a neighborhood in Atlanta that basically was like disrupted, completely torn in half by the I-20 freeway. And I grew up in California, so I don't know the history of it. But when we moved there, we were like, this is really weird that there's this freeway in the middle, like basically breaking up this whole neighborhood, beautiful old Victorian homes. And whether it's the airport buying up the land or perhaps they use eminent domain as a combination of it, I think that there is a history in New York is the same way. A lot of cities around the country where the government just comes in and says this is for the best or there's a financial incentive. And so there's a sadness to that. And so this brings this wonderful light for me personally. And I really loved, I recommended, we'll put a link on the show notes, the video that's on Finding Mm. the Flint. That was really fun to me because that started to show all of the, it's not as if the airport's not embracing this. You've got your Hartsfield Jackson Airport individuals supporting this as well as I really love that the Delta Museum is right there. And it looks like there's some really interesting collaboration that might be happening. Can you tell us a little bit about how the concept has been embraced locally and what are some of the ideas to sort of bring the green space back? We'll be right back after a quick break. 
Jennifer, guess what's coming up and where we get to hang out? What's that, Monica? The Biophilic <laughs> Leadership Summit. It's back this March 24th through 26th. Oh my gosh, I cannot wait to see you in person again. It's been way too long. I know, me too. And we invite all our listeners to come to this year's summit. We're going to be exploring biophilic placemaking and how we use biophilic principles to promote health, happiness, and vitality in public spaces. Yes. And I was just reading over the schedule, which I'm very excited about. There are so many great speakers and panels. And when you get to join us, I'll be doing a nature walk and moderating a wonderful panel on activating community spaces with two incredible women, an architect and an urban planner. So this summit is put on by the Biophilic Institute and Biophilic Cities Project. So you can also come meet all of the leading experts in biophilia. And in addition to all incredible multiple presentations, we're going to have all sorts of great farm to table meals, plus cocktails, some book signings and lots of networking, which is always a favorite. And it's going to be at your and my favorite place, the Inn at Serenby. Yep, that's one of my favorite places, as you know. So join us in Serenby for the sixth annual Biophilic Leadership Summit from March 24th to March 26th, 2024. And you can learn more about the summit and register today at biophilicsummit.com. That's biophilicsummit.com. We hope to see you there. We'll see you soon. Bye, Jen. Bye. I love hearing how universal that feeling is that there's a 60s era of building big infrastructure, freeways and airports and dams. And it's a story across the nation that people can relate to that, like, we built this for progress, but there were costs. And now this new generation of designers and people like me, writers and historians are sort of like, how do we balance this infrastructure that we now depend on? I mean, we need the airport. We depend on the airport. But how can we try to balance through the power of design and community design? How do we start to make these places livable again and friendlier to the people who already live there? Mm -hmm. So one way that we've been doing that with Finding the Flint is just I do a lot of like stakeholder and community engagement, getting people who work at the airport or work at Delta, elected officials, business owners, corporate partners all together to get out and discover the Flint River. Mm. And it's sort of like you were just saying, Jennifer, that like everybody has a sense of discovery in nature and everybody has this personal connection to water. And we just are trying to spark that excitement at every level, including folks who've worked at the airport for their whole career who don't know about the Flint River. Take them 90 minutes south of the airport where they can go kayaking where mm. they can see a bald eagle or a river otter and think all this started under the airport. They, they start to make these connections and you can't unsee that once you've experienced mm -hmm. that discovery mm -hmm. and that joy. So I try to focus on making fun opportunities for access for people all up and down the upper watershed. And from that experience, we've been able to look at the big maps and identify green spaces and wetlands and opportunities to build trails and parks where there's currently just industrial land or floodplain, little pockets of green space that can't be developed because the river is flooding there constantly. So we found several opportunities on the north and south of the airport. And we're working with, for example, the city of College Park is looking to build a nature preserve right at the source of the river on land wow. that's currently owned by MARTA. It's right yeah. at the intersection of the railroads where the watersheds meet. So it's a seven acre park and the city of College Park is looking to buy that land and develop it as the first nature preserve in the city of College Park. And I wow. should say 
The Atlanta airport is surrounded by pockets of green, by forested areas, by wild spaces. None of these are publicly accessible. There are no public parks on the edge of the world's busiest airport. There's no trail. There's not even a spot where you can pull over and watch airplanes if you wanted to. And my children want to. (laughs) (laughs) It's a true attraction of this area, the airplanes. And there's other airports all around the world that have managed to do this, to build Mm -hmm. safe, secure green spaces along the runways or parks and from San Francisco to there's a great one in Washington, D.C. to other international airports in Asia and in Europe. So it's not like this has never been done. It just doesn't exist in Atlanta because there hasn't been an advocacy group saying that it would add value or saying that it matters. Mm-hmm. That it's worth investing in. So that's kind of part of what Finding the Flint has done is find the common desires of all these different stakeholders, whether it's Delta employees who want a slightly greener campus to spend their days on or airport area residents who understand that more trees helps buffer sound and the noise pollution from the airport or elected officials who just want to create trails that connect neighborhoods that are currently cut off by freeways. So I'm always listening to all these different stakeholders. So what matters to them? Because not everybody feels comfortable on a Creekside trail. Not everybody cares about fish and turtles, but everybody... (laughs) Everybody depends on clean water and they can see this river as a rallying point, as this thing we all agree is worth preserving, worth protecting, and actually could bring a lot of benefit to the people who live and work here. Have you guys ever, or has the Atlanta airport ever thought of somehow, I mean, I don't know how you daylight it through the airport, but doing something that points to it where it might be, like whether that's an art installation, they have a phenomenal art program. Jennifer and I, when we go through the airport, if we ever meet each other in there, that incredible flight path with the name yeah. of your book, but the piece yeah. Yeah. between B and C or A and B, it is phenomenal. I mean, we've talked about it on here before and we've talked <laughs> about it. It's so interesting. Obsessed with it. And it's phenomenal. And so to do something that spoke instead of the sky, the river would be an amazing right. thing. Has the airport talked about that at all? I love that installation and I go out of my way to see oh, it. It's, it's this immersive Every like, time. rainforest experience <laughs> yeah. and it's so... It's so peaceful. You're in the bowels of this machine, the airport, and it's such a nice escape. So it's funny you say that. I got an email last week from somebody at the Atlanta Airport Art Department or office, and they're actually working on an exhibit this year about psychogeography. It's a group show, and they invited me to contribute something to it. I have a call about that this week, so stay tuned. That's amazing. Okay, good. Yeah, That's really cool. And it's not just me as an artist. Along the way with Finding the Flint, I've been talking with different designers, photographers, musicians, filmmakers, art makers, and trying to find and create and seed and cultivate opportunities for different artists to respond to this really unique condition in the Atlanta area. So just recently, there was an amazing photo show in Hapeville by Virginie Kippelin. I'll send you a link to include. Yeah. But she did a lot of photography over the last several years of the Flint River headwaters. So I do think art is a great way to tell the story and maybe one of the most important ways to get regular people to feel that sense of excitement and discovery and and maybe urgency around Mm -hmm. the condition of the river. The airport, you know, daylighting the Flint River through the airport is I haven't found an opportunity for that to happen. The best thing we have is this spot right next to the Delta headquarters on the north side of the airport next to the Delta Flight Museum. The river's already daylighted. Yeah, And there's a two, two and a half acre spot right there that we would like to see turned into a public park that would be not only great for experiencing 
the headwaters, but also watching airplanes. And it would be connected to the Delta Flight Museum. Mm-hmm. So we've worked with the airport team and the Delta team. And a lot of the questions there are about security because it's right on the edge of the of course. Airport. That makes sense. One thing, Monica and I, I mean, we all know what daylighting is, but can you also share with our <laughs> audience what daylighting is? Thank you. Yes. So most creeks and rivers flow freely, but once they're put into a pipe or put into a culvert or put under a parking lot or underneath a road, that's the opposite of daylighting. I don't know what you call that. It's covered or channelized. So it's not uncommon in urban areas for there to be creeks and drainages that are underground in pipes and nobody knows they exist. But mm-hmm. there's a number of examples around the country. And uh, I look to them often like in Greenville, South Carolina or in, in Lexington, Kentucky, where a creek that's been underneath the roads and the you know, the pavement, they tear out that surface and restore the edges of the creek so that it's in a more natural condition. And that's called daylighting. So it's literally just returning the creek to the you can see it and you can access (laughs) and it's actually getting light. That's important because a creek that is daylit is a living creek. That's where critters can live and wherever there's Mm -hmm. water, there's life. And it's important for us too, to be able to see and hear water. We're just drawn to it. Our bodies Mm -hmm. are made of water and (laughs) (laughs) gravity is acting on water all the time and it's acting on our bodies. So there's a few spots north of the airport where the Flint headwaters are underneath the pavement, underneath the mm-hmm. parking lot in Hapeville. We'd love to see those areas daylit mm-hmm. and accessible again. Within the airport, though, the question is more like raising awareness through arts, through signage. Also, if there's a public park right on the edge of the airport, then that's a way for people to get out and see the river. Another big opportunity is the airport is 5,600 acres. A lot of that wow. is runways and concrete. But in between, there's all these pockets of surfaces where water can infiltrate. So Mm -hmm. American Rivers has worked closely with the airport sustainability offices for years to develop green infrastructure opportunities and plans on the airport so that as it rains, the river isn't flooding quite as dramatically with runoff and that there's Mm -hmm. no opportunity for that stormwater to soak into the grounds of the airport or go into detention or just Green infrastructure could solve some of the flooding and pollution issues downstream. And if the airport is implementing it, it becomes a model for surrounding industrial properties that the airport is surrounded by warehouses and logistics and Mm. lots of impervious surfaces. Right. Now, I love the whole daylighting concept. Where do you find things are going quickly? Like it sounds like maybe the two acre park next to the Delta Museum has potential. And then you were saying the seven acre that College Park will potentially buy. Does the conservation fund act as a bridge for that to help purchase that land? Or is there a nonprofit that's doing it? Or is it just city funds? How does the purchase work? Well, they're all unique and different. The conservation fund has played that role. And those folks are real estate experts. So they're at the table helping the cities figure out what is the best package of funding or how do we negotiate? It's mostly they can play that role, but they haven't because often the land is already owned by the city of Atlanta mm-hmm. in the case of the spot right next to the Delta airport. So nobody has to buy it. Which is great. Um, There is an example south of the airport. There's 11 acres that the Conservation Fund has already bought and protected on behalf of Clayton County. These are Mm -hmm. wetlands that were owned by an industrial developer who, of course, couldn't touch them because there's a river running through it. 
But now that is 11 acres protected for the Clinton County Water Authority is the ultimate owner. And you're exactly right. The conservation fund has the capital to go in, negotiate a good deal, buy the land and hold it until the city mm-hmm. or county or whatever government agency is ready to um, transfer it to mm-hmm. their property. So we're actively looking for those kind of opportunities to snag green space and protect it when we can. And one of the other things that I had no idea about that you're also working on, which also I think the Conservation Fund and Ryan might be involved with, is this Lake Charlotte project. Tell us a little bit about that. That's another area that had been a private piece of land that at one point had been accessible, but had got a chain link fence around it because it was part of waste management. But tell us a little bit about that. That's also on the South side and where that project is, because that's really interesting as well. Right. The work on finding the Flint, honestly, some of it translates to other waterways in Atlanta and beyond Atlanta, because there's so many urban creeks and streams that have a similar story of being forgotten and degraded over time as Mm -hmm. the city grew. And the South River in Atlanta is a very similar story. It's actually kind of unique that there are two rivers that begin in Atlanta, but the South Mm -hmm. River and the Flint are those two. So I had been working with Ryan Gravel several years ago on a project to try to understand and restore parts of the South River through Southeast Atlanta and DeKalb County. And I kept coming across on the map, this thing called Lake Charlotte Nature Preserve, which is like a 200 acre forest. And I I, honestly, I tried to go visit. I was like, I've never been to this park. This looks cool. I want to see the lake, but it doesn't take long to figure out. It was fenced off. It was owned by the landfill company, which the Mm. landfill was right next door. And it's got a long and fascinating history. I was just like, what? I was obsessed. What happened? Where's the lake? What happened to the lake? How did a landfill company end up owning a public Mm. nature preserve? Because it didn't take long for me to figure out that the city of Atlanta had owned a nature preserve there. There was a public park there very briefly. Mm-hmm. And the city kind of ditched the idea, but it, I was like, is that a scandal that the city yeah. owned a nature preserve? And now it's owned by a landfill company. I got to understand this. So yeah. how'd they get away yeah. with selling it? <laughs> yeah, right, right. Exactly. That's what I, I had a lot of questions. And also who's Charlotte? Where's the lake? What is <laughs> that? And I think that finding the Flint kind of trained my brain to ask these questions. And also just being a writer, I know a good story. <laughs> when I come sure. across it. Uh-huh. So I started researching that and I'm actually working on a book right now. I've got a book manuscript that is about lost waters and mostly lost waters of the South. So I did a lot of research to try to understand what happened to Lake Charlotte and the happy ending of the story. And I'm not spoiling the story by telling you is that the conservation fund acquired the property back from the landfill operator and it's now a city of Atlanta park. And you can go visit Lake Charlotte and you can see there's no longer a lake. It was drained, but you can see the creek that runs through there. And Charlotte was like the granddaughter of the original property owner. So that's just one of those many, many stories around Atlanta where I Mm -hmm. I just want to peel back the layers of history and development to see like, whose idea was this? What happened here? Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. How did this happen? Right. How did it change hands and who was involved? And yeah, exactly. I think the green city infrastructure is so important. And have you guys been working with any, you said a little bit of the city officials. Are you personally, besides writing, it almost seems like you've become a bit of an activist for the rivers, right? For the waterways, you're sort of representing them informally. Tell us a little bit about how that works for the Lake Charlotte. Was that something that you spearheaded with the Conservation Fund and Ryan to get that opened? Or was that on the docket with the city? Like, how did that come about? 
I learned about it at a time when the city was looking at that property as an opportunity. And part of the story is that there's this bucket of money called the City of Atlanta Tree Recompense Fund. So that I'm just going to give you the rough outline is that when the city developers come in to build and they cut down trees, they have to pay into this fund. And Mm -hmm. the city uses that money to purchase forested land and protect forested land. So the city had over the last several years developed this fund and they were actively looking for forests to protect and preserve inside the city limits. We're the city of trees and it's great to plant trees, but it's even more important where you can to protect the land. Mm -hmm. Because again, it's more than just trees. It's about protecting water quality and everybody appreciates having a green forested public space. So the city had gathered a group, including the Conservation Fund and Trees Atlanta to start looking for properties that potentially could restore some forests back to the city and back to public access. And this was on their list. Lake Charlotte was on their list. Hmm. So that was a long process. I can't claim any credit for pushing that along. I honestly was just on the side asking Ryan Gravel and Stacey <laughs> Thunderbark at the conservation fund, can I get in there? Can I see what's back there? And at this point, he's such of, a great guy. He loves Stacey. Right? I've learned a lot from him and he's really taught me that, you know, you can have a lot of great ideas about the future, about how cities should be and what lands should be protected, but you have got to control the land Mm -hmm. or these ideas are just pie in the sky until you can say, we have seven acres and we're going to make it sustainable and accessible and equitable. We all agree Mm -hmm. that those are the goals, but Mm -hmm. it really starts with the land. And I think those of us who enjoy parks often have no concept that this could have been a farm or this could have been a subdivision or this could have been a runway, but somebody mm-hmm. somewhere invested in protecting it for me to enjoy and my kids to enjoy. That's a great point. We do sort of take that access for granted. And I know Jennifer so much mm-hmm. is always advocating for people to get out. And I think even that sometimes people don't have access. And I know Atlanta and I probably use cities across the country are really thinking about how you can have green space within a certain minutes from your home. Like Mm -hmm. everybody should have that access. And that's just another concept that I think people don't think about. If we do have access, we take it for granted and really thinking, how do we make it equitable? Mm -hmm. And especially the South side of Atlanta has historically been lower income. And so that's something that probably the airport obviously has a ton of money and they've the Aerotropolis district, which is super cool, like has brought together all these individuals. So I love to see Hapeville and College Park, which are these towns around the airport, really stepping in to champion all of that. Tell us as we're getting towards the end of our time here about the new book. So that's really exciting. So is that the final title, Lost Waters of the South? Or and, yeah. and where did you go with it? Is it just Georgia or is it all the region? Thanks for asking. So it's sort of about access. I started writing this when my kids were learning to swim. And at the time, they were like four and six years old. And I was trying to figure out where they could access water on a regular Mm -hmm. basis because we could do lessons here and there. But they weren't really learning without practice, without access. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a question most parents at some point are like, yep, we got to join a pool or we got to. We got to spend more time here or there, or we need to join the Y or something. And Mm -hmm. that's where it started for me. But then, you know how my brain is at this point. I realized there used to be public pools in East Point where I live. And Uh there was a black pool and a white pool. And they both really were Mm -hmm. shut down in the early 80s, really, because, and this is a common story across the country, the city really stopped investing in them and funding and maintenance on these pools Mm -hmm. after they were desegregated. So I started writing about our adventures of trying to find a pool and swimming in different pools and lakes and creeks all over the South. 
And it's very much connected to finding the Flint. This is like, once you realize that you don't have a pool and the creeks around you are polluted and the lakes are private and that access to water is this really scarce resource that at this point, your access is determined by class and geography and where mm-hmm. we're at in the south side of Atlanta, we really don't have access. So the mm-hmm. book, the tentative title is The Bottomland Diaries because I'm like snooping around all these like flooded areas and mm-hmm. rivers. And <laughs> But honestly, I assume that whatever editor ends up buying the book sure. is going to change sure. that name. <laughs> sure. Um, but it's a year of searching for water in the South and it does go all over Atlanta. We went to every public pool in Atlanta, just about, and lots in the okay. suburbs, but uh-huh. then also lots of creeks and rivers around Georgia and around the Southeast and Alabama and Tennessee. So I write kind of a memoir and investigative blend of nice. uh, urban history. So there's a lot about me and as a mom trying to figure out what kind of kids I'm raising and like trying to grapple with there's a really entrenched segregation in public mm-hmm. spaces across the South and mm-hmm. particularly in swimming pools, which are such, mm-hmm. and swimming yeah. holes, which are such intimate spaces. Mm-hmm. So I learned a lot about the history of public pools. And I love how that kind of balances with like, we built pools because we were losing access to natural swimming holes. And then we shut down pools and built private pools. And we really are like, we're in trouble when it comes to water and who can get mm-hmm. to it in the South. You really have to, it's privilege that you exercise when you get yourself in the water. Yeah, that's kind of what it, it's about. <laughs> no, that sounds wonderful. And again, living in Grant Park, that pool, the Grant Park pool, when we were there, I want to say was refurbished and then people had access, but then it wasn't fully funded or maintained. And so there were a lot of challenges around what it was like when you did go. I'm blanking on the authors, the book, but I feel like the past year or so, there was a book that came out that really pointed out that those pools were drained and it wasn't that they were the black pools were drained or the white pools were drained. Like all pools were drained because of segregation. Like they kind Mm -hmm. of said, well, we're not going to let anybody come in. And then it spited everybody. And it's just sort of a, I'll use the word disgusting and sad history, but I think it's so Mm -hmm. important to know it, you know, to understand that history. I'm fascinated again, as somebody who didn't grow up here to hear the stories about what people did you and know, how just, it's still it, kind of hurting yeah us that mm-hmm. that book I think you're talking about it's called The Sum of Us by Heather Is McGee Heather McGee okay yes. she's she's uh, an okay, economist yeah. and she's, she's amazing you know, she's really mm-hmm. been focused on how racism sort of hurts us all it's not just one yeah. directional it really actually hurts us all as a community and it certainly has stunted the growth of Atlanta when you look at public transportation or mm-hmm. public spaces, public pools, public schools. It persists in a lot of ways that hurt all of us, not just the disadvantaged or marginalized communities, but everybody is affected mm-hmm. by it. That's kind of one of the major things I discovered through the search for a place to swim. That's an awesome book that has definitely, I'm glad that people are thinking about swimming, but it's not just about swimming. I think swimming is a fun lens into thinking about public space. Yeah. Well, and then she dovetailed into the ability to swim and drownings. And so as a mom, you're very concerned about getting your kids to learn how to swim, but you don't recognize that that's a really privileged position to be in to be able to have access and then be able to pay for lessons. And so Mm -hmm. that's another area of inequality that leads to some major safety Mm -hmm. issues. That's right. And I think with just to bring it back to finding the Flint, you're not going to be swimming in the Flint headwaters in the airport area, right? but 
people, and I'm one of these people who lives in the airport area. And if I want to go get in a river, I have to go 90 minutes, two hours north or south of the city to get far mm-hmm. away from the city. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't the case 50 years ago. You could swim in creeks mm-hmm. in Atlanta. And I actually have talked to a lot of people who still do. I don't recommend it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I do think in the future, and this is something that you'll see in New York, there are already there's several groups in New York who are working on restoring swimming to the East River. Like that's the goal. Yes. Like you should be able that. to swim mm-hmm. in urban waters. That should be clean enough and accessible enough for, that's the goal. So it sounds ambitious for finding the Flint, but that's the goal is these are our waters. We have Mm -hmm. access to them. Why are polluters allowed to take that away from us? And those polluters Mm -hmm. are often our own governments who are spilling sewage into them. Yeah. Yeah. That they've gotten away with it for so long. And I always think that having been in Boulder recently, like the Boulder Creek to me is a fascinating model. And I don't know the history quite as much, but when we went, people are all along in the summer, along the creek, and there's tons of access points. There's a whole bike path along it. You can basically traverse the whole city. And then there's just different access points and people will even tube down it and such. But why can't we do that in other cities, Mm -hmm. I guess, would be the question. It all leads back to education, right? So the more we know, the more we want to do the work that Hannah's doing is like, why aren't we able to do that? Why can't we? And then we kind of put that stake in the ground in our own cities, wherever we might be and say, We need to come together and clean and understand what happened here. And why can't we be better for the future, for future generations, like children, grandchildren, and et cetera? Yeah. And I think, how do we let people know that as a citizen, rethinking that communal Mm. thought, that Mm. we're all citizens and we, in order to flourish, we all have to flourish together. And I think people have forgotten that. And I think the work you're doing is bringing that back to mind. And so I thank you for that. It's been really interesting to learn and I can't wait for your next book. Thank you. It's really my pleasure and privilege to do this work, to be the one saying, hey, we can raise our expectations of this. This is our water too. And we can write a different story for our kids and grandkids who will look back and be like, hey, remember when this was polluted and you couldn't walk in it? Exactly, exactly. It gives me something to wake up and look forward to. Yeah, well, That's thank great. you, Anna. Yeah, Appreciate thank you so much. And can't wait to share this with our audience. Thanks for having me. So our conversation with Hannah was so fascinating to me because we're really covering territory that I don't think we've delved into yet on the podcast. Absolutely. I mean, this whole notion about huge swaths of land, including lakes and rivers that cities either A, pave over and build on top of, or B, completely cut off access to is really not something that I personally have come across or really even fully considered before. Yeah. And it makes the problem really tricky, right? Because we can't solve it, you know, something that you can't see or that you have no way of knowing about. So we're lucky to have people like Hannah who take on the role of really an urban historian, bringing things to light and organizations like the Conservation Fund who help bridge the gap between nature, access, equity, and private landowners. Exactly. So in addition to the Flint, which was our main topic today, the Lake Charlotte story is a really fascinating example of this, where a huge tract of land changes private ownership multiple times and ends up behind a padlock gate for years before it's rediscovered and returned to public use. There is this link in the show notes for anyone who is interested in getting the full history and the full story that I really highly recommend. It's really fascinating. Yeah, it's definitely encouraging to see movements from groups like Finding the Flint who are making real strides to daylight these lost hidden rivers and streams and then create public access points so they don't fall back into oblivion. 
right? And it seems like there's a lot of momentum and a lot of participation from the airport and from the city, which is so encouraging. Yeah. And then she also said Delta is getting involved with their Delta Museum right near the airport. So the next time you're driving down a major industrial road and see a big padlocked gate or a wire fence, do a little digging and see what you can find legally, of course. I mean, <laughs> Hannah, <laughs> Hannah has had not one, but two major discoveries from just doing that. And support groups like Finding the Flint. All right, Jennifer, until next time. Bye, Monica. Thanks so much for listening. And if you're enjoying the podcast, we would love for you to follow us on your favorite podcast app. Give us a five-star rating and please leave us a review. It really goes such a long way towards helping us reach a wider audience and sharing these amazing interviews and solutions with the world. Absolutely. So thanks so much for following and reviewing the podcast. And we'll be back with another amazing interview in two weeks. You're now a part of the biophilic movement. 